Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Emily P. Freeman has a gift for helping others clear a space in the midst of mental, emotional, and spiritual clutter. In the middle of complexity, she points to simplicity without being simplistic. She's the author of The Next Right Thing, the creator of The Next Right Thing podcast, and co-founder of Hope Writers, an online community for writers. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from Emily P. Freeman as much as I enjoy talking to her. Emily P. Freeman, thank you so much for being on The Habit Podcast. I'm, I'm really glad this worked out. Oh, me too. I, I'm so excited about it. <laughs> um, so you write and talk and speak uh, in your in your podcast, uh, The Next Right Thing, um, you have so much to say about um, decision-making, decision fatigue. And as I was sort of reviewing your, some of your episodes of the podcast and, and uh, uh, some of your writings, I, I was just really thinking about the idea of decision fatigue with relation to, to writing, because you know, there are so many decisions one makes when writing. It's, it kind of is a series of decisions is one way to think about it. And as you, as you, I think you say, uh, an adult makes 35,000 decisions a day. That's the number I've heard over and over again. And I've tried to, I've tried to do the research to find that opposes that number. And I've not yet found it. I've, I've just read between 30 and 35,000 decisions every day, which, I mean, if you think about it, that seems impossible, but at the same time, really everything we do is a decision. It might not be a conscious decision, but it's, a decision nonetheless. Yeah. So I, I'm assuming they're counting those two. <laughs> so uh, talk to me about, about the, uh, about decision fatigue and writing, because you think a lot about decisions and you, and you write. So um, what, what have you thought of, I mean, did you have thoughts on this subject? That's a great question because when you said uh, really writing is a, just a series of decisions, man, isn't that the truth? Maybe that's why it's so hard. <laughs> so we're just constantly making decisions. And it's, it's a great question. And I do think that decision fatigue shows up for me in writing um, in small ways and in big ways. And a lot of it is, it's re- in some ways can be related to confidence of, you know, uh, if I, if I lack confidence in this, in my own voice or just on a particular day, then the decisions feel a lot harder. The, um, whether that be technical decisions I'm making in writing, usually it's more angle or tone. And I think when I, I heard Seth Godin, uh, write, say once about writer's block that he doesn't believe in writer's block because he, he doesn't, he says, well, have you ever had talker's block? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not, you know, we just, just say words, but it's, it's not so much that we are, unable to write words. It's that the words that we're writing aren't very good. And so we're afraid that that we're going to write bad words. And that's where the writer's block really gets us is that we feel like it's terrible. And I can relate with that because I can, I feel like it's, it's when I feel like I'm making a series of terrible decisions in my writing is when it, it starts to feel impossible. But when I change the rules and just say that, you know, that I'm allowed to write whether or not it is terrible at first, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of loosens, loosens things up a little bit and gives me some permission to be a little more playful and, and have a little bit more grace towards myself in the process. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, you, you saying that in giving yourself permission to be more playful and, and being, um, and not, you know, 
and write write bad first drafts. Um, reminds me of, of one of your recent podcast episodes in which and now I can't remember who you were quoting, but uh, in your uh, in your address to the, gr- the graduates for 2020, you know, you were you were quoting somebody else's commencement speech, and you you talked about you know don't try to be great. Um, who who are you quoting there? Yeah, it's. I'll tell you what you'll learn about me if you don't know this yet. I'm really good at finding great things other people say, <laughs> and then repeating them, and 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 hopefully always giving them credit. But that was Char- uh, Charles Whelan wrote a book, or actually he gave a commencement speech in 2011 to Dartmouth College, um, and that commencement speech was turned into a book uh, called Ten and a Half Things No Commencement Speaker Has Ever Said, <laughs> and I think this might have been thing ten, but it, but the the title of the chapter was don't try to be great and it came from a it was actually something someone else said to him he was on a he was a, a guest on a, on a tv show a live tv show in chicago um and it was it was you know it was 30 seconds till till airtime and phil ponce was the journalist who was hosting the show and charles whelan the author of this book or that's this commencement speaker prior to giving the commencement speech. Uh, but he was on the show and he was nervous and he was realizing that anything I say, no matter what it is, if I fall off my stool, if I make a weird face, like it's going out there to the live audience of Chicago. Um, so right before they went live, Phil Ponce leans over and says, don't try to be great, just be solid. Mm-hmm. And he said um, that advice had a profound effect on him because he realized Oh, if I if I'm not trying to be great, I just get to be myself, and I get to bring to the table what I have to give. I don't have to be funny if I'm not in a funny place. If I if that's not my thing, I don't have to prove anything. I just get to be myself, and I know I can do that. I can be solid in what I have to give, and I just thought, wow, what amazing advice! First of all, for graduates, because right. you know the, we live in a world that says try to be great, be great. Yeah. Greatest of all time. Uh, no one says, be the solidest of all time. Like, that's not a thing mm-hmm. that we say. Um, but the pressure that can be relieved when we give ourselves permission to, you know, just be solid, just be you. And, and uh, then, then, the, then we, ha- and as a writer, when I think about writing, wow, that, that gives me permission to not feel like I always have to dazzle, but that yeah. I can just be honest and, and, yeah. and write true things. Yeah. Um, uh, the, I, I do, I mean, the, the next question is, I guess, um, I know there are people who feel like they, when it comes to writing, they can't even be solid or that they don't have enough to give, you know, to, to be being themselves isn't enough. Um, and, and the desire to be great, I think is, is almost by definition, a desire to be, you know, something that we're not because none of us, you know, I don't think most of us walk around thinking I'm really great. <laughs> and so if I'd be myself, I want to be great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's now that's the truth. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm in the middle of a, a teaching a, a class called writing with Flannery O'Connor. And just yesterday we were talking about um, the ways in which um, O'Connor, just by paying attention to what's going on around her, I mean, you, you read her stories and you think this is, this feels really original. This feels you know like nothing, well, I, I say it feels like nothing I've ever read before, except there are so many people who've tried to imitate Flannery O'Connor that, you know, that I have read other things like that, but I'm sure at the time it felt very, very unique, very original. But the truth is, um, I feel like her originality doesn't come from um, 
thinking how original can I be, but rather how can I really give an account of what's really going on around me? And um, the, I mean, I I think Flannery O'Connor's writing is great, but it probably doesn't grow out. Probably. I I, I can't imagine that grew out of her trying to be great. I I think it came out of her trying to, to give an account of what she had seen around her. Absolutely. And, and I think when you just change the posture from, because we all know what that feels like to try to be great. Mm-hmm. And I would, and like you said, I would venture to guess that most of us always feel like we're falling short of that. If great is the standard, it's like, I, I, who gets to decide what that is? Um, but that's, but solid is almost this idea of being kind of a fixed point of being. And when I think of the word solid, I think of being grounded, being rooted, of not yeah, floating yeah. away, of being mm-hmm. gathered. Um, and that is much more accessible because I can think of times in my life where I have experienced uh, being tethered to something deep and being rooted in who I most fully am. Um, and yeah. that's something that you know on the inside, whereas greatness is almost something you have to prove on the outside. Oh, and wow, that's, that's great. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. I love that language of being gathered. Um, and I do think that is a standard that writers can can live up to, right? I mean, I, I think we um, uh, kind of the job of the writer is to to look around and, and see all these, you know, scattered things and think about them long enough to, to sort of gather up some things that that we're not, you know, nobody's asking you as a writer to think thoughts that nobody's ever thought before. Right. (laughs) It's just, can you just sort of bring some things into focus that is largely a matter of taking the time? It's, it's, it's not, you know, I'm not making the claim that I'm smarter than everybody else when I, when I write something, I'm just saying I've spent some time thinking about something that you haven't had time to think about or haven't taken the time to think about. Absolutely. Um, And I think I've, I think I've remember you saying something along these lines that, you know, that your job is, is sort of, um, just to sort of give voice to some things that other people have thought and haven't necessarily had the language for. Was that you? Am I right about that? It is right. You are right about that. Sometimes I, I feel like I have made it my job to um, to say thoughts that a lot of people don't have time to think. Like, mm-hmm. but but once they're spoken into the world, you you realize like, oh I, yes, that. You know, it's it's such mm-hmm. an honor to be able to put into words something that someone hasn't been able to name yet. Yeah. And so to have this, you know, Madeline Lingle talks about the importance of naming. And mm-hmm. I think as writers, that's, you know, that's our, one of our highest callings is to be able to name things that are unnamed because I think so much in our human lived experience goes unnamed. There's so many things we don't learn in school. We don't learn how to, we don't learn how to grieve. We don't learn how to say goodbye. We don't learn how to fight racism. We don't learn. There's a lot of things that we don't learn in school. And I think one of them is we don't, we don't know how to feel our feelings. We don't know how to name things that are beneath the surface that are more intangible. Um, And so as a writer, I've kind of made it my job to, 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 pull up things from, in many ways, like you said, things that seem scattered around and gather them up and see how they relate and connect the dots a little bit. And then I might not be right in my assessment or my observation, but at least I feel like a call to do the work of, of making one or of, mm-hmm. of, of, of having an observation so that it can be talked about and, and maybe, maybe misunderstood or maybe debated, but what an honor that, uh, 
that a reader is paying attention and that maybe that could give voice to something that has been unnamed within them. Yeah. I love that. And, and that doesn't seem, I mean, when you put it in those terms, I feel like that, that gives hope to the writer, right? That you're talking about something that, again, you may be a genius, Emily, but one doesn't have to be a genius to do that. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not commenting on whether you're a genius or not. I'm just saying one doesn't <laughs> have to be a genius. One does not have to be. It is not a prerequisite. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, okay, I, I, we, I, I don't think we, we really dug in the way – we kind of moved on to the idea of greatness before we really finished talking about um, decisions. So, so it, it, in the, 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 your, way of, you know, your way of thinking about decision-making, um, can you say a little more about how, you know, how your, your – ways of you've, you've done a lot more thinking about decision making than than most of us have um what are, can you be more specific about how some of these things apply to the decision making all these this series of decisions that is the writing process well i'll tell you if there's one thing that can make a human feel scattered it's when you have decisions to make and you don't know what to do yeah and so this idea of um i i, I started paying attention to I started paying attention to what I paid attention to when I had a decision to make. And that can be very telling is when you have an unmade decision, it demands your attention. And what do you do with that demand? Where do you look? Where do you go? What actions do you take? What lists are you making? What's keeping you up at night? Who are you listening to? Who are you asking for advice? Are you someone who starts to make the list? Are you someone that starts to uh, pray? Are you going to ask everyone you know? Like there's all these different I don't want to say coping mechanisms because that's not always what they are, but in some ways they can be that. They can also just be tools that we use to yeah. make decisions. But a lot of it is rooted in a fear that we're going to make the wrong decision or we're going to make a decision that we regret. Or we're going to make a decision that, you know, is counter to what God might want if you're a person of faith. So there's, there's all these factors that come into this decision-making process and um, we're so focused on the decision that I think we sometimes can miss the point that it's not so much about the decision that we make, but it's about the person we're becoming. And sometimes one uh, beautiful and sure path to being spiritually formed is the decision-making process. Because guess what? We will be making decisions until the day that we die. You don't retire from it. You don't graduate from it. You don't age out. You just—it's just always a part of our life. And what an interesting, uh, what an interesting embodied and uh, Im embedded kind of experience for us as human people that the way the way we make decisions is really the way that we make our life. And so, if we can pay attention to where do we go when we have a decision to make, that can tell us a lot about. The person who we are becoming. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, you know, one, I feel like in in my teaching of writing, a, a lot of what I, you know, end up doing is helping people to see where they need to. Um, I mean, you talk about paying attention to, to what you pay attention to. Um, I mean, writing writing is is hard enough when you're doing it right, um, and so often people are sort of perseverating over things that like they're, they're, they're really 
working hard on the, the, the things that they don't need to be working hard at, you know, whether that's, you know, ornamentation in, in the way they write, you know, the, um, the, or, or feeling like I've got to make this sound like somebody who's smarter than I am or, you know, or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, I feel like it's so important to redirect. Let's let that go. And you, you know, let's, let's pay attention to everything from, you know, making sure your, your verb and your subject are close together, you know, at, at the sort of, at that level, but also um, thinking through, I mean, as you were saying, really understanding what's important, you know, what, what am I really writing about here? And, and, and devoting my energy to those kind of decisions instead of all these other decisions that are, um, that are sort of wasting precious uh, attentional resources, right? I mean, yes. we, we, we have a finite amount of attention we can pay. And when we pay attention to the wrong things, we don't have anything left for- You go broke. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's right. And, and I think you have hit it really on the, what is it? Hit the nail on the- Head. That's, that's a cliche that some yeah. say, um, but but that idea of when when our attention is pulled into the direction as a writer of really all those things you say is us trying to be great. We th- have this idea of what great writers do and what great writers uh-huh. say and what types of decisions they make and what types of adjectives they do or do not use, and then we try <laughs> to put those in, um, and our writing ends up sounding real like we've tried really hard but without much to show for it yeah. um and and i think that is that that is that external like what we believe about what a great writer is is constantly speaking to us when we're editing or when we're writing that first draft or second draft or final draft uh is there's just this invisible perfect writer who kind of lords over us in our minds mm-hmm. and uh is kind of like uh, that's not great. <laughs> You're not measuring up here. Uh, and so we try harder from this outside place rather than uh, having more of a rooted and grounded place from, from within. Uh, and I just think that's that. And even when I think about, I know we didn't mention this, but writing in today's kind of day and age where yeah. uh, to, to, to sell books when, you know, there's, there's this idea of writing and publishing. And I know you don't talk a lot about, you don't talk about publishing. You talk about the writing yeah. as a writer who, who, if, if, if you are a writer who is published in this, in the marketplace, talk about feeling scattered. You know, there is a, yeah. there's a pervasive, it's like a, a chronic illness of being scattered as a writer. And so the more we can, uh, you know, bring it into this gathered place of, of a, a tethered center of knowing who we are and and writing true, um, the outcome actually is you're a better writer. There is better. Yeah. There's there's greatness that can come from that, but it it's uh, it's it's not in that order that we always think. Yeah, yeah. No, this uh, this idea of looking outward and saying I know there's something you know the the writer I need to be is is somebody I'm not already. That's right. I, I mean, I you have to be careful because I, people need to get. I mean. People, writing is not a natural act, right? I mean, no, you have to learn it and work at it just like anything. All right. But there is, there can be an intangible idea of there is, there is a writer that I'm, there's a writer that I'm supposed to be, but I can never get there mm-hmm. versus I, I am working on my craft and I'm becoming better every day. Mm-hmm. It's that comes from a place where I am right here moving forward rather than an imaginary going forward in the future in anxiety and looking back at myself 
Yeah. And that's very, I know that's really like imaginary, but I think that's kind of the difference for me personally. Mm-hmm. Is no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Spaces, yeah. And, and working from what, what are we, what, what can we already do? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people are, so as, as Seth Godin said, you don't get, don't get talkers block. I've had talkers block plenty, by the way, but, <laughs> right, right. but the, um, but, it, but I do appreciate his, where he's coming from. I, I do appreciate the idea that there are things that we already are, we already do, do know how to, we, like, we know how to, to form, to, to put ideas into to words. We do it all the time. And, um, and so to build on what we're already, what we already know how to do and, and say, I am building out from there, not chasing something that's, that's outside of me. Yes. I think it's, it's really, um, really helpful. Um, we, we know how to tell stories. We do it all the time. You know, and then on the other hand, you know, um, uh, I, I do think I'm, I'm always talking to writers about the idea that, you know, focusing your energy on not learning to do the stuff, like not fixing the problems, but rather building on what you're already good at it. I think, you know, it's a great pleasure to me to sit down with a writer and say, did you know you're good at this? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and at the same time, sometimes, you know, that conversation is you're not as good at this over here. So maybe let's focus on, maybe you need to restructure the way you, you write so that you're really building on that strength instead of thinking you've got to spend all your time fixing these problems that I just identified. Sure. Fix those. But but don't devote all your energy to fixing those instead of building on what you're already good at. That's a that's a much more hopeful way to do the work, I would say. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> one one likes to give hope. Um, so speaking of hope, since, since we're on the subject of hope, let's talk about hope writers for a minute. You sure. you have a, a community of writers um, called Hope Writers, and um, it, I say you you're you're one of the one of a team mm-hmm. that, that is part of that. Um, and so uh, it, you, you have done some thinking about, about writing in community um, and the importance of, you know, well, community and writing relationships. Um, I mean, we, we think of writing, it's so easy to think of writing as something that you do alone. And some of it you do alone, right? You have to get off in a room by yourself. Um, but um but you, you were also interested in community in yeah. writing. Yeah. That's not a question, I don't guess, but that's the, the full I'll answer your non-question, and that <laughs> is that I totally agree that writing is, I mean, it is, it's fooled us for all these years because it is something you have to do in the room by yourself. Even if you co-write a book, you still have to sit down and, you know, write your piece by yourself yeah. or else you go crazy. Um, and sure, there are people who maybe do more communally and they talk out their book. But at some point, someone is sitting down and writing it out, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but the, so while the, while the act of writing is, for the most part, a solitary act, the writing life doesn't have to be a solitary mm-hmm. life. And I think that is something I didn't understand for a long time. And I suffered for it. And then finally recognizing, oh, oh, wow, I need other people in this. And in fact... Um, other people who not only 
um, can, you know, read my work for feedback. I mean, that's, of course, that's one practical nuts and bolts way, but just people who are in your corner, who know that what this means to you, who understand that this is part of your life and it's an important part. Uh, Once I, once I started, and, and the key to that though, something I learned early on was I had to be able to voice that for myself first because I found myself writing solitarily by myself, uh-huh. but not letting, for example, my husband know that this was something important to me, that this uh-huh. was something I wanted to work on and get better at. All he saw was me disappearing and, you know, doing a thing and it, to him, maybe it's a hobby. It's fine. But like, you know, let's, let's do other things now. And, it, but yeah. that was, was my job to communicate uh, not only this is something I value, this is a part of, you know, me becoming more fully myself and then him embracing that and saying, oh, I get it now. Yeah. Let me support you in that. That made yeah. a huge difference in my ability yeah. to, to write well. So Hope Writers, we started, it's been almost five years now. And um, over time, it's evolved to become what it is now, which is where we really help writers balance the art of writing with the business of publishing. So mm-hmm. writers who, you know, want to know that, we find a lot of writers that, you know, they'll email me. They ask me about, uh, can you, I want to ask you questions about writing. And I'm like, "Mm, do you want to ask me questions about writing or about publishing? Because usually when they want to ask me questions, they want to know about publishing. And if you think if if writers don't separate those two things, you're in for a lot of heartache uh, and, and trouble. So that's something that we really work to help writers both train writers in knowing uh, how to develop both their understanding of the business, but also the art of writing. Um, but, but mainly the difference of knowing the difference. And it's, it's not as easy to suss out as just that one statement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you talking about, you know, letting your husband in on the fact that this is important to you. It reminds me of a saying we have at our house called putting on the tennis skirt. Um, and my, um, my wife played, you know, she played tennis. She took up tennis, you know, when she was, you know, already, a, I don't mean as a teenager. I mean, like as a, as a mom and had several kids and, and as a grown up, as a grown up. <laughs> and so she, um, but she wouldn't, she wouldn't buy a tennis skirt because she felt like that was making too much of a statement that I'm, I'm now a tennis person. Sure. And, um, and she didn't feel like she was a good enough tennis player to, you know, to declare herself a tennis person and wear a tennis skirt. And so finally we're like, you got to go buy a tennis skirt. And, and then when she, when she bought the tennis skirt, she was able to say, okay, I'm a tennis player. And, and so, you know, anything, anything from, you know, buying the expensive pins instead of the cheap pins, you know, you know, that's, that's, that's a way of putting on a tennis skirt, you know, for me to say, no, this is valuable enough that I'm actually going to, you know, not buy the cheapest pins at Walmart, but rather buy, I still buy them at Walmart, but it's the more expensive, you know, it's the uniballs instead <laughs> of up, right. Instead of the big, right. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I, I do think that's, that's, it, I, I get the sense that's a part of what's going on at Hope Riders is people saying, I am, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a writer. Yes. I think Hope Riders is the tennis skirt for a lot of writers. Mm-hmm. It's them finally saying, you know what, I'm going to invest. And if I'm investing, then that means this is a thing. And if yeah. it's a thing, then I have to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that can, that might be as far as it goes for some of them. And that's far enough. Like they're like, mm-hmm. wow, I've made a statement here. And that's a really beautiful statement to make uh, if you're a writer. And so that is something we talk about all the time. And it's, it's funny because it, a lot of times every, every writer thinks they're the only one who feels 
you know, that way, like insecure mm-hmm. about it or like, oh, I don't know if I, mm-hmm. we always think everyone else is so much further down the road than we are. Mm-hmm. And then we get in community and we start getting honest and we realize like, oh, wait, I'm, I see myself reflected in your face. I belong here. And that's mm-hmm. the beauty of, then it frees you up to actually finally do the work that you want to yeah. do anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know, that lack of confidence kind of out of the way and it's no longer a huge part of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, you, you almost have, you're always comparing your early drafts to everybody else's completed work. <laughs> yeah, um, and unless you're in community with, with other people who are, who are writing, you don't have any other option, but to, I mean, yeah. there's, there's nothing else to look at, but completed work. Yeah. We don't put out the half done work. That's not yeah. what they sell at Barnes and Noble or on the internet. <laughs> well, sometimes on the internet it is, but yeah, right, yeah. it's not what we compare to. You're right. So true. Yeah. Um, all right. So, okay. I, I've got and I'm before we run out of time, I need to ask you about, um, I found, I found out a while back that, that you, um, are a, an American sign language interpreter. And then you told me earlier today that you actually majored in that in college. Um, and I'm just really curious. I, I want to know how did, how has that affected your way of using language? Um, hopefully your, your writing, um, because, again, the, I, the what I, I don't know much about sign language, but one thing I know is that you, in using sign language, you are literally giving physical a physical rep, you know, representation of of words, which is literally true when we speak because we're making sound waves you know move. Um, but I feel like you, one is a little more in touch with the fact that that you are creating a sensory experience. Um, with language, which is, you know, what I'm always trying to get writers to do, to, to focus on the sensory. So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm starting to answer the question. I want you to answer the question. No, not, that's great. That's good. Well, I did go to school to be a sign language interpreter. Um, so I got my degree in educational interpreting for the deaf. And then I went on to become nationally certified um, as a sign language interpreter. Um, I have since let that certification lapse as I've been, you know, writing now for the last 10 years or so. Um, But that was my training was in, and actually before that, I was always really interested in language. I I went to Bible college before uh, I went to the university to to learn sign language, but I thought I was going to go into like Bible translation. Like I would, you Mm -hmm. know, that was kind of my early thinking, you know, language was just always so fascinating to me. It still is, Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it kind of pivoted into sign language and I loved learning the language, the people, you know, deaf culture is a fascinating study. Um, and one thing that's interesting about, you know, just side note, uh, deaf people in general is there's just, they're all over the world. There's not, and it's like, it's like this hidden group of people mm-hmm. because every culture, every country has deaf people in it. So it's not like you can learn about deaf people one time. It's like there's every, every country, every language has their own sign language. So there's British sign language, even though they speak English in England, they don't use our same sign language. Um, So the only reason why someone who lives in England could communicate who's deaf with someone who lives in the United States of America is just because they're more used to um, doing gestures with one another, but it's not because they have a shared language. Really? Um, Yes. So that's why when you hear American sign language, it's American sign language. And then there's Australian sign language and there's, you know, all the different. In fact, I think the British sign language, their alphabet is two handed, whereas our alphabet in American sign language is just one handed. So Mm -hmm. 
you know, these little differences that are just interesting and it makes you wonder like, why is that? You know, I want to like, you know, spend all my time looking into that. But so I learned American Sign Language, um, but even in the United States, the, the language, um, there's more of like a, what they call a pigeon sign language, which is sort mm-hmm. of an English word order. So uh-huh. I, that's how I could, I could sign and speak at the same time when we're talking right now, and I could sign everything that I say in English word order. But American Sign Language is actually not an English word order. It has its own syntax and grammar, um, and you can express, for example, the intensity of a word based on your facial expression. That's why when there are um, uh, imitations and sign language interpreters, like on Saturday Night Live or something, they're always really expressive with their face. That's because the eyebrows are actually part of the, um, the, the questioning, like raising your eyebrows will mean something different than furrowing your eyebrows. Um, And so these are the things that you learn that it's part of, it's not just the sign itself, it's also the the position of the body or the expression on the face that determines meaning. And so I think to your point, long way around to your point, Mm -hmm. as a writer, you know, I think that because I was trained as an interpreter, I was trained to hear one language, um, process the, the meaning and intention of that, and then uh, interpret it into another language for, uh, uh, for deaf students, particularly I worked in education. So I did that in the classroom. Um, and it was endlessly fascinating. Now, sometimes, you know, I'm interpreting a ge- geometry class that was not as fascinating because you have to kind of go in English word order to make math uh-huh. make sense. At least I did. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but for the most part, you know, the history class, English class, it was just fascinating to be able to hear something and quickly process, but also to be able to hold it in your mind. That's one thing interpreters have to learn to do is yeah. they're always a, a little bit behind to where you have to be able to hold two sentences ago what was said because you're still interpreting. And there, with sign language, there's some simultaneous interpreting you can do while mm-hmm. someone's talking. But to actually translate it, um, there's just that practice. But what that did for me is it made me a better listener, not yeah. just for the words that are said, but for the meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. Um and I think as a writer, you know, I was trained as an interpreter, but I'm still, I, I feel like in many ways, that's still my job as a writer is to, yeah. to learn things, to take in my lived experience and to maybe interpret it into more of a um, communal experience or a story or whatever it might be. Um, and I think that, you know, when I let my when I let my certification expire, you know, get the letter that's like, you must earn this many CEUs or else this will expire. It was a, I had to grieve that, but I also had to learn, you know, I'm still using these skills. Nothing was wasted. I'm still using these yeah. skills, but I'm just applying them differently as a writer. Yeah. It's great. You're gathering. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving that we hit on that idea of gathering early on because I think that's, that's really, it's what we've been talking about this whole time. The writer is a gatherer. Yeah, absolutely. Right. All right. Last question. Hope you're ready for it. Who are the writers who make you want to write? This is almost impossible. There are so many. Um, But the ones that come to mind, uh, modern day writers, I think of John Blaze, who uh, is is an editor, but he's also a a lovely writer. Um, I think of Barbara Brown Taylor makes me Mm -hmm. want to write because she's able to write uh, really profound things but she uses such simple English words and you think, mm-hmm. wow, the best writers do that. Don't they? I wonder yeah. how, how long it took her to write so simply. Um, yeah. And Lanny O'Connor, by the way, when I cut and paste her into the little, you know, thing that tells you what grade level people are writing at. Uh-huh. Second, third, fourth, fifth grade. Wow. That's that when you know they're good. Madeline Lingle's another one. Um, 
Yeah. Hey, Chesterton, who I have to read his paragraphs a couple times, but yeah. still it makes me, makes me want to write. Um, and another uh, recent author that I just kind of learned about in the past year or so is Sean Dietrich, who writes memoir and kind of personal okay. story. I have so enjoyed talking to you, Emily. Me too. Thank you for we'll having me. Soon. So, um, so thanks and, um, and onward and upward. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Thank you.